Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For today's classic, we wanted to spotlight um, another podcast that we think you might enjoy called Modern Rules. And that's rules as in R-U-H-L-E-S, as in Stephanie Rules, um, who has done a lot of work outside of MSNBC, but you've probably seen her on MSNBC. Um, she talks about all kinds of things that we we talk about on this show, like feminism, what? big one, masculinity, yes. uh, privilege, political correctness, the Me Too movement, um, social media, and faith and moral leadership. So if you're interested in checking that out, please do. Um, and for this, our classic episode, something that kind of ties into that uh, and is also pretty important right now. Something very timely. Is uh, where are the women in political campaigns? And uh, I feel like we're, we're working on something around this as well about women in politics in general and what that looks like today. And so keep your ear out for that one. Ear out, yes. Yeah, <laughs> keep your, your hand cupped to your ear. Is that how you start? Okay. And when you hear the no- notification, like, ah, and then it's not that one. But it will be eventually. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm building a whole story in my head. I just like the, ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this classic episode. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this week could be considered House of Cards week on Stuff Mom (laughs) Never Told You. Today we're talking about campaign strategists. Yeah, because typically when you hear uh, from a campaign strategist or about one, it's usually a dude. Yeah. And so why is that? Why is that? Um, And speaking of House of Cards, before we get into women in political campaigning and strategy, can we just take a moment to talk about uh, Corey Lewandowski, who to me (laughs) is... Doug Stamper on House of Cards, IRL. Well, tell the people who he is. Okay, so... Besides being a real-life Doug. (laughs) He is a real-life Doug. People who have not seen House of Cards are just so confused right now. Um, So, uh, Corey Lewandowski is Donald Trump's campaign manager, and he's been extremely visible throughout the whole campaign. Um, I would say that he's been the most visible campaign manager, partially because he was charged with simple battery of uh, former Breitbart reporter Michelle Fields. Um, The charges have since been dropped. But he uh, is what you would expect Donald Trump's campaign manager to be. I mean, he's opinionated. He's uh, pretty, let's say, rough and tumble. I like how diplomatic you're being. Well, this is all about campaign strategy and spin. So, Caroline, I'm just, you know, <laughs> trying to, like, really just get into the spirit of it. Yeah. But didn't he, like, he pushed her, right? Yeah. I watched the uh, security footage. You can see it online. And he grabs her and and pulls her away. I mean, it's kind of hard to see what exactly went down. But, um yeah, it was I mean just just the very idea of that happening seemed 
just I'm a stranger than fiction. Although we can't like this political season, we should just expect <laughs> stuff like that to be happening. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like on like low on the list of bizarro things that have happened so far. I know. <laughs> just the the day before we came into the studio to record this podcast. Uh, Boehner referred to Ted Cruz as Lucifer in the flesh. Like, things are just so weird. Politically, like, things are so weird. And instead of focusing on the people out front, like Ted Cruz, Carly Fiorina, Donald Trump, etc., we wanted to pull back the curtain and look at the political machinery because, Mm -hmm. obviously, with all of the money that now goes into political campaigning, there's so much background work to hone messages and optics Mm -hmm. and uh, events. And you have, when you look at the gender breakdown of who does what behind the scenes of political campaigns, you have um, a little pocket where women are are, um, welcomed, Mm -hmm. and then the rest of it, it's... Pretty tough for a lady. It can be pretty tough for a lady to branch out in in the strategy realm. But first, I wanted to take a look at uh, people behind the scenes in general. So campaign staffers, because I'm sure a lot of you saw that big Jezebel piece that was looking at how men and women in campaign staffs are paid and how many are employed. And overall, the numbers are pretty, pretty bad. Uh, so this, again, is coming from Jezebel. And the the campaign with the highest pay discrepancy between men and women was Ted Cruz. Uh, male employees make an average of 20000 more than female employees in that campaign. The now-defunct Rubio campaign actually paid women the best. They made, on average, just more than $5,000 more than male staffers. And of, ten, of the 10 highest-paid staffers on the sadly-defunct Rubio campaign, which a lot of people— BT dubs in the primaries are still voting for Rubio over uh, Kasich, for instance. Um, Six were female. Six out of ten on the Rubio highest paid staffer list were uh, female. Not so for Bernie. He is literally the only candidate who has no women in his top ten highest paid employees. But he has paid the women in his campaign equitably. In fact, on average, uh, they're making a little under $1,000 more than the men. And then if we look at Hillary Clinton, uh, men and women were making essentially the same amount. And of her 10 highest paid staffers, uh, six are dudes, four are ladies, um, one of them being Huma Abedin, who's uh, one of the biggest names really in in political uh, campaigning period. Uh, She's Hillary's chief of staff and her campaign's vice chairwoman. Um, And she also was on Call Your Girlfriend not that long ago, which was uh, interesting to hear. I mean, like I'd never, she's been featured in a number of magazines um, and profiles and obviously has gotten a lot of attention because her husband is Anthony Weiner. But it was, it was nice to hear whom I have a just kind of off-the-cuff conversation, as off-the-cuff as a chief of staff can be. 
Yeah, and I, I love knowing that she started working for Hillary as an intern at the White House in 1996, so she's been with her a long time. Um, and if you look at Trump, uh, out of his 10 highest-paid staff members, seven are men and three are women, uh, and women on average make $3,000 less than men, their male counterparts, for the Trump campaign. And John Kasich is actually the only candidate who has a female campaign manager. Her name's Beth Hansen, and actually Mike Huckabee too did too— he hired his daughter, but, you know, he's long gone as well. You mean from the campaign, right? Not from, from Earth? Correct. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I find it so ironic that Kasich has the the lone woman campaign manager, Beth Hansen, because his policies regarding women, as he's been um, Ohio governor, have not been so lady-friendly. Again, you're being so diplomatic. <laughs> Um, so he oversaw massive shutdowns of abortion providers in the state. He passed a 2013 budget to defund Planned Parenthood while mandating ultrasounds. Um, and in an interview with Beth Hansen in Elle magazine, the interviewer asked like, what she thought about uh, when Kasich essentially – shut down um, a young woman's question in uh, one of his events by saying, oh, look, I don't I don't have any tickets to the Taylor Swift concert. Oh. And uh, and Elle magazine was understandably like, OK, like, how do you answer to that? How can you say that your um, your candidate is still like a woman friendly person? And she was like, well, you know, he has young daughters, he has teenage daughters. And he's just, you know, I think it was just like he was trying to be funny. And I mean, it was just like spin, 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 spin. Um, But apparently she's been she's been with him for quite a while as well. Um, But if we look at the gender breakdown in terms of uh, numbers, just like of staffers, every campaign minus Hillary Clinton's has employed significantly more men than women, which does reflect just the broader trend in politics. But oh, for sure. I was heartened to see that Hillary Clinton, the one woman running for president, did hire or has hired more women on her staff than men. Yeah, and we will, and it's not just Hillary, we will talk about that aspect of women in politics here again in a little bit. But, you know, the whole... Uh, skewing male thing obviously has been going on for for a minute. Uh, the political consulting field uh, itself rose to prominence in the 1970s and 80s. This is when you start to see the professionalization of people working on campaigns, and of course, consulting. That sort of encompasses a broad range of positions, everything from campaign managers to people who are just consulting on, like, media appearances and things like that. So it's kind of a broad range of positions. Um, It was in 1988 that we see the first ever female campaign manager, Susan Estrick. She was hired to run Democrat Michael Dukakis's bid for president back then in the 80s. But also, didn't she get it? She was kind of the runner-up. Oh, yeah, she was not the first choice. Yeah. Yeah. The dude he wanted to hire was, I don't know, otherwise engaged. Washing his hair. Um, in 2004, Mary Beth Cahill, John Kerry's campaign manager, was the only woman in that role uh, for that presidential race. And in 2010 and 2011, according to 
often quoted Rutgers political science professor Kelly Dittmar. Uh, she was looking at political consultants, which, again, that encompasses strategists, pollsters, ad makers, managers, media advisors, uh, people who were working in top firms on senatorial and gubernatorial races those years, 2010 and 2011. And she found that about 75% of consultants with strategic influence were men, but a higher number of women were working on Democratic campaigns than on Republican ones. And that's like you see that every year, almost in every type of race at every level of government, that more women are working for the Democrats, more women are in the higher levels of those consulting firms who work with Democrats. Yeah, so in 2014, for instance, among key Senate races, uh, 6% of GOP campaigns had female managers versus 40% of uh, Democratic campaigns. And that was something that Mitt Romney's former deputy campaign manager called disturbing in terms of the lack of senior level women. Yeah, I mean, so basically when you are reading articles about women in consulting and campaign strategy, you just hear a couple of names over and over again, some of like the OG (laughs) women consultants and strategists. And uh, Republicans, for instance, had pollster Linda Duvall, operative Maria Sino, and of course, uh, consultant Mary Madeline, who she's almost more famous for being married to James Carville, they of the opposite political ends of the spectrum. And for the Democrats back in the day, you had media gurus like Mandy Grunwald and Don LeGuinz and pollsters Celinda Lake and Diane Feldman, not to mention superstar strategist and one of my favorite Twitter presences, Donna Brazil. Yeah, I was telling Caroline before we came in the studio to record that uh, Donna Brazil is one of the only things that I really enjoy about watching CNN during elections. And she is a political force to be reckoned with, not to mention she's made history. Um, So she worked on every presidential campaign from 1976 to 2000. And when she ran Al Gore's 2000 campaign, she became the first African-American man or woman to manage a presidential campaign. Um, And (laughs) I love this fact about her. She first got involved in politics when she was nine years old, working to elect a city council member who promised to build a playground in her neighborhood, (sighs) which immediately made me wonder, like, (laughs) was that Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec? (laughs) Because it would... How perfect would that be? Um, I know that's impossible because Leslie Nope is not real technically, <laughs> um, but could she's be, real in my heart. Yeah, it could be totally based on that story about Donna Brazil, who she did write in a memoir that for nearly my entire life, my mother worked as a maid. Never in her wildest dreams did she imagine that her daughter would grow up to influence national politics or manage a presidential campaign. And I mean... It's funny, though. I wonder if she's sort of downplaying it because clearly this woman is determined and single-minded and even from the age of nine, like, was clearly a little politician who was able to affect change. And speaking of her, though, women of color have been intimately involved in grassroots political organizing since the Reconstruction and early civil rights eras with people like Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell and Mary McLeod Bethune, um, who were instrumental in the National Association of Colored Women that was 
highly invested in um, activating women within black communities to organize and get out and vote um, so, so that they could, you know, elect officials that would have their needs in mind. Um, and segueing though, into today's more establishment political machines has not surprisingly been harder, not just for women of color, but for people of color in general. And you mentioned, Caroline, that uh, Donna Brazil is so single-minded. If we look at the 1988 Michael Dukakis campaign, uh, this totally reinforces and um, just goes to show how uh, how single-minded she truly is. So essentially, like not intentionally, the campaign siloed its top-tier operatives onto a separate floor in their campaign headquarters, um, which mostly meant that all the white dudes were up top and everyone else was on the bottom. And uh, Brazil and Mignon Moore uh, were field directors at the time. And those two, plus Susan Rice, (laughs) stormed upstairs claimed a conference room on the top floor and put a sign on the door that said, colored girls, we shall not be moved. And (laughs) essentially from that moment, this group of women, these political consultants calling themselves the colored girls, have become this D.C. force that if you hope to get elected on, you know, for any national campaign, like, you've got to have dinner with them. They hold these, like, regular dinners, and essentially candidates come in and they grill them, basically making sure that they are keeping communities of color in mind because it's like if if they don't like you, you're probably not going to get elected. Yeah, well, just like Dukakis's headquarters weren't intentionally segregated along race or gender lines. I mean, that that could stand in for all of politics. Politics aren't necessarily intentionally segregated along those lines, but they often are. And so you have women like Brazil and the rest of the color girls group that form this influential contingent of women of color who are able to advise candidates and remind them gently or not that you can't forget that the Democratic base rests on the vote of not just white men, but people of color and women. And so if you want to make it in this town, like you've got to be able to think outside of your own bubble. Well, yeah, and it's African-American women's vote in particular. Um, But one more thing about that 1988 campaign, it is surprising that that even happened because, like you mentioned earlier, Susan Estrick, was the campaign manager. And it's like, Suze, come on, Suze. (laughs) Suze. What happened? Um, But today, the uh, group of color girls, which they still refer to themselves as, um, has expanded to include a few more women, including Reverend Leah D. Daughtry and consultant Yolanda H. Carraway, um, and also the DNC general counsel, Tina Florney. And in a New York Times profile of this group, a number of politicians spoke to their influence, including uh, Howard Dean, who said, quote, they're very rare Washington insiders who understand the rest of the country. Um, and this whole thing speaks to why looking at who is behind the scenes in these political campaigns matter. Because yeah. if 
you only have white men or also white women who are crafting your platforms, essentially, then there probably aren't going to necessarily take an intersectional approach to policymaking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Tonya Bui points out in Asian American Policy Review that the campaign staff needs to reflect constituent diversity. And she also points out that you might have training programs if you want to work on campaigns or in strategy. You know, there might be a training program that's just general or ones, you know, specifically geared toward women. But there's nothing really out there for people of color who want to step up and work with campaigns and be that voice for other populations that want to see themselves represented. Well, and in conversations about the gender gap within, um, like, our elected officials, I think that this part of the pipeline, the the background political consulting and strategists and, and campaign managers, that aspect of the pipeline is something that I know I didn't think about before reading up for this podcast. We just think of, oh, well, we just need more women to stand up and uh, be willing to be candidates. But this is an integral part of getting more women in office, too. Um, And that's something that Boy underscores in terms of the pipeline issue, that if you do not train and empower more women of color to enter into political strategy and have influence in that realm, then the pipeline is still going to be leaky. Yeah, and what I didn't realize before preparing for this episode is that when women are working in campaigns in strategy or consulting or whatever, they tend to be concentrated in fundraising, which I had no idea. And uh, this information is coming from Katie Orr uh, from KQED and Abby Rappaport from the Texas Tribune. Uh, So basically forever, uh, women have been barred from those higher level strategic positions in campaigns. And while they're more likely to be registered voters and grassroots organizers, they are way less likely to rise to those elite levels. So what is the deal? Why are these women like shuttled off to fundraising positions? Well, first of all, this reflects a broader trend of women in nonprofits, of it being more acceptable for women to be in the upper ranks of a nonprofit organization that's just fundraising and raising money versus... To help others. To help others. Exactly. The Mm -hmm. whole altruism thing um, versus something that's considered far more masculine in terms of being in the war room of campaign strategy. So um, Rappaport and Orr talked to a number of women who are uh, consultants and also fundraisers in politics. And they essentially compiled a laundry list of all of these presumably female-friendly work responsibilities that we hear over and over again in terms of of many pink-collar jobs. So you have the whole thing of altruism, of humility and putting others first. You're raising money not for yourself, but on behalf of this candidate and for the community at large. Which reminds me of our conversation with Gina and Ashley from Recruit Her when we talked about negotiating and how it seems to, for salary, and how it seems to be so much more uh, acceptable for a woman to um, negotiate for a higher salary for someone else or 
based in logic around helping others. So, yeah, same exact thing. And a lot of the women, as both a positive and a negative, said that the duties that come along with fundraising, like event planning, sending out invitations, and playing hostess, are traditionally women-oriented tasks. And as Susan Lilly, a Republican consultant, put it, these tasks typically fall on women, whether it's in politics or a wedding. Well, and the whole idea, too, that it's detail-oriented mm-hmm. work um, and, and therefore appealing to women and therefore something that women do better than men is something that we have heard also applied to a lot of other sectors as well. Um, not to say that, like, don't you tell me that women are detail-oriented. I am so sloppy. Right. But it's the whole thing of, like, are you saying that being detail-oriented and a planner is only a woman thing? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then there's a the whole socialization aspect of it. Um, this was something that Amy Boone, who started her own consulting firm before moving over to the Texas Democratic Trust, uh, talked about saying, from the time we're little girls, we are conditioned to not really be the ones raising our hands. So, again, it's that that fun fundraising is feminine. Who yeah, knew? Exactly. And then Boone went on to explain that it's possible that women are just getting pigeonholed. She said that it's common when a woman shows up to work on a campaign without much experience and without much confidence, the senior staff just tend to push her over into a junior fundraising role where she can do things like just stay behind the scenes, planning, making phone calls, planning parties and stuff like that. Just basically assistant role stuff. And so if that's the position that you're placed in and you do want to advance, well, you're probably just going to continue advancing up that fundraising ladder. But despite the fact that women are the overwhelming majority in fundraising, if nowhere else in campaign strategy... They're still not typically the ones making the decisions. Because as Dittmar points out, you might be in fundraising and you might be bringing in all of this cash money, but that's not a like clear-cut strategic role the way that being, for instance, a campaign manager or a media spokesperson would be. And in a very blatantly sexist kind of way, um, some campaigns are simply nervous about putting women in charge of strategy because it it does violate gender norms in a lot of ways if we think of campaigns as going to war, as many political consultants do. And this was something that Ann Urban, who began professional campaign work for Republicans way back in 1977, she said, "Uh, I think there's an old-school conservative good old boy inclination to go with a guy because it's too rough and tumble to be a woman. Yeah, so, I mean, that goes hand-in-hand with the pigeonholing thing and just pushing a woman off into fundraising. If you just assume that someone who doesn't look like you is only going to be good at one thing or she's not going to be good at what the thing you're good at, then how, like, how, who's going to break that barrier? Because if you're just operating on assumptions about what a woman is cut out for. And I think that the likability factor plays into this as well, um, where you see women who might be in those more strategic roles, shot calling, likelier to be dismissed as bitches. Yeah. And so a lot of the women that were interviewed were talking about how 
you know, a lot of successful women in campaigning and campaign strategy and consulting have to be comfortable with that. You have to be okay with getting called a bitch because it's inevitable. And one woman pointed out, like, a lot of women just aren't comfortable with that. And especially when you're starting out. And so that could also get you hamstrung from progressing up the ladder in strategy. And then you have the optics issue because, uh, A, you have um, the idea that an attractive woman is going to be better at raising money because who doesn't want to give cash to a beautiful woman? Whereas a campaign manager who's going to be on the road with a candidate, especially if that candidate is male, if you have a a lady traveling alongside him, then might that raise some eyebrows about how close their relationship really is? And that's something, too, that is not exclusive to uh, political consulting, but really, I mean, workplaces at large where it's like, it's fine if all the guys go out for happy hour. Um after work, but if a lady wants to tag along, then then people might get a little nervous. Well, yeah, and so one of the quotes that really sort of I had to read a couple times to make sure that I was reading it correctly was from that Republican consultant, Susan Lilly, who said, uh, male candidates don't need to be traveling with a young, attractive female. It can give the wrong impression, even though there's nothing really wrong with it. So kind of giving in to just, well, tongues will wag, so we better just not do it. We better just avoid it. Um, But there's, I mean, so many other aspects of why women get tripped up trying to pursue jobs in strategy and consulting. Uh, But of course, these are things that we see in so many other professional fields. And we will get right back into them when we come back from a quick break. So there was this series of interviews that some researchers conducted with consultants back in 2003, and they found that those consultants, men and women alike, believed that women in consulting, political consulting, face different rules of the game, so to speak, including having to work twice as hard to be successful in the business, not being taken as seriously or seen to be as credible by candidates and the political parties as the menfolk, and having to be careful about being too aggressive in their marketing and approach to business. So these are not just like think piece writers talking about this stuff. These are the consultants themselves talking about the perceptions of women among themselves, among their own ranks. And it seems like that aggressive penalty comes up over and over again when you hear from women in this field. Um Liz Shatteron Powell, who's the VP of Political Strategies with Bates Neiman Inc., which is a Democratic direct mail and issue advocacy consulting firm, uh, said that you have to be aggressive to rise to the position as an executive director of a committee or a partner in a consulting firm, which, again, you have that socialization aspect. This is a behavior that women are socialized from young ages often against, um, even though many people in the field embrace it. Um, And you also have the issue of, you know, the Doug Stampers, (laughs) the men in power, who might not be so keen on giving them a leg up. Yeah, and then... A huge factor um, in the field, just like it is 
<laughs> comes up anytime we talk about women who are alive and having children is the whole family and parenting aspect because if you whether you're a working mom or a stay-at-home mom uh you're socially expected to be there for your children and your family more than you're expected to be at work. It's the whole mommy tracking issue we've talked about before. And uh, Angela Faulkner, who's a Republican direct mail consultant, told the publication Campaigns on Elections that she felt huge stigma as a mom and full-time consultant, especially when she was traveling overseas for clients. She talked about how Early in her career, she actually felt resentment from other women, not dudes, not dudes calling her out and calling her a bad mom, but resentment from other women who were questioning her decision to work in Venezuela's recall election rather than stay home with her children. Yeah, she said, when people talk about family values, it's usually based on a stable home environment. And many conservatives feel that a stable home environment requires a mother that isn't required to travel. Um, and the the childcare aspect also reminds me of a Glamour magazine piece that we read profiling um, women in the current election. And one thing that uh, Huma Abedin said was, if Hillary is elected, what she's going to do the very next day is turn off her phone and spend the day with her son making him pasta and taking him out for ice cream, which I was like, can I come over, A? <laughs> um, but it, it kind of drives home. Like I, I was reminded reading that, like, oh, yeah, you probably do not get to see your kid all that often because it is a 24-7 job. Yeah, it does make me think of how how could Doug be a father? I mean, aside— Doug Stamper on Doug, House of Cards. Doug Stamper on House of Cards. Oh. Like, how could he be a father? Let alone all of the, you know— personality quirks. The sociopathy. Yeah, well, that too. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard across the board to make time for family or social life or anything when you are working in a political campaign. That goes without saying. But it turns out that those grueling schedules can make certain jobs more difficult than others. For instance, media consultants typically end up with the hardest schedules of any operatives uh, because, you know, I mean, it makes sense. You've got to respond rapidly if something happens. If Donald Trump says yet another thing about women or Muslims. You've got to have your phone on to be able to respond. And plus, you've got nearly constant travel. And so that, according to a lot of female operatives interviewed, is one of the reasons that there are likely fewer women in media than in places like polling, fundraising, or direct mail. So yet again, for many women in this industry, there is that double standard forced choice of motherhood versus career and uh, how are you going to make the two work together. And obviously there are plenty of women who are doing just that, but the issue is that men typically do not face the same kind of decision-making. Right. And I mean, it turns out when we hinted at this earlier that party affiliation is definitely a factor. According to a study in the Journal of Political Marketing from 2011, they wrote that women consultants tend to work for Democratic firms, consulting firms, more often than Republican-led ones, and that women-led firms were more likely to be hired by Democratic rather than Republican candidates. And so basically this 2011 study echoed prior studies that found that not only are more women consultants Democrats, 
but Democratic consulting firms are more likely to have women named as partners. And so as a result, Democratic candidates are more likely to hire consulting firms with women partners. It's like gender politics math. Literal gender politics. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, and I wonder if that uh, kind of partisanship in this issue goes to what Angela Faulkner, who was that Republican direct mail consultant, talked about in terms of uh, conservatives having a very distinct perception of family values. That's often a uh, top conservative platform and family values often when it comes to uh, when you look through the Republican lens um, often involves a woman at least closer to home. But I mean, it's not like women aren't out there doing it for themselves. They are. There are more women these days leading campaigns, leading super PACs and heading up consulting firms. One thing I I didn't expect, I guess I should have expected it, is that it's actually really hard to find numbers. You know, Kristen and I love citing stats. It's like our favorite thing. We love to give you percentages. But it's hard to find clear-cut percentages and stats when you're dealing with so many private firms and behind-the-scenes makeups and breakdowns of demographics. Which, again, I mean, like— Uh, ridiculous that that is the case in something that lives and breathes by data. Yeah. But of course, I mean, it's data and also image. So Mm -hmm. there's only select data that you would probably want visible to the public. Um, But you do have more women who are starting their own consulting firms. And it's not just Democratic women. You have uh, Katie Packer-Gage, Ashley O'Connor, and Christine Matthews, who got together and founded the Republican-focused firm Burning Glass Consulting um, because the Democratic narrative about the GOP has been the whole war on women. So these three consultants got together and were like, you know, this whole tone deafness issue that a number of Republican candidates have had when it comes to women is something that we could really focus on. And the whole Burning Glass aspect of uh, their name comes from the idea that they're going to be so laser focused, like mm-hmm. a, like a sunbeam that could burn through the glass. I think I got that yeah. right. Basically. Yeah, exactly. But according to Sarah Brewer, who's the former associate director of the Women in Politics Institute at American University, uh, found through her research that female political consultants often work twice as long in the field before starting their own firms than men do. And the speculation around that, I mean, there's a couple of reasons that could be. One, you need, obviously, kind of a fat Rolodex of clients and connections to start your own thing. And if you are not in a client contact heavy position, it's harder to make those direct connections. Uh, There's also the thing that we've seen so often when we talk about women or really any minority group uh, in a professional capacity that there's often this need to feel that you have to work harder to prove yourself. And that makes it sound like you just internalize that and feel like you have to do that. But often people around you, I guess in this case, it would be the white guys working in the campaign, expect you to work harder. Well, and I mean, the very fact that Burning Glass Consulting uh, received a New York Times profile, an interview by Amanda Hess and Slate, all of this media coverage, because it was three Republican women, you know, forming this consulting firm, I think speaks to 
how, you know, this this is kind of a rarity. Oh, yeah. I mean, and especially when it comes to Republican consulting. Right, exactly. Um, but in 2012, women ran more than half of the 13 most competitive Democratic Senate campaigns. And that year, women were also in charge of two key campaign committees, the National Republican Congressional Committee and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. But uh, those are both back to being headed by dudes. So it's not like a permanent change. Um, And again, that increase in women operatives has been stronger on the Democratic side. And in 2012, on the Republican side, there was just one female manager working on those top 13 most competitive Senate races. So as we are seeing slowly but surely the numbers of women in political campaigning increasing, the question is, why is this happening? Um, So it could have to do with an influx of money into and the professionalization of campaigns, which creates more opportunities for consultants. Um, I mean, the, the way that political campaigns are funded have has been a major issue on the Democratic side of the presidential race this year. Um, and you also have a deeper bench of female operatives who have gradually risen to the top, not to mention an increasing focus and just general acknowledgement that female voters win elections. I mean, women essentially are the people who decide who at least gets to the White House. Yeah, and another big aspect of this is the proliferation, like dandelions on your front yard, of super PACs. And those super PACs offer men or women, more job flexibility and, and schedule flexibility than working directly for candidates. And that, so that's attractive to anyone, uh, male or female, who has a family or, you know, I don't know, like 17 cats, like whatever, you know, or like a bocce ball league on the weekends, like whatever you want to do to make your life more rewarding, uh, you would have a little bit more time for it. And Alexandria Lapp, who's the executive director of the House Majority PAC, says, yeah, I'm not getting a call at 11 p.m. from the DCCC chair of Congressman so-and-so. You answer to your donors, but it's different than answering to a politician. And super PACs, by the way, in case you are not familiar, it's their job to raise and spend a ton of money, but they can't donate money directly to candidates. So there is that layer. (laughs) Wink, wink. Yeah, 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 exactly. There is that layer of separation. So, yeah, you're not answering directly to like an angry candidate or an angry campaign manager who wants to talk to you in the middle of the night. Oh, gosh. What if Doug Stamper called you in the middle of the night? How chilling. I don't think I'd answer. I don't have the, um, the the exact numbers in front of me, but in terms of women of color and political activism, um, there's also been an exponential um, influx of PACs forming specifically to um, engage those groups. I mean, for instance, you have uh, Rosario Dawson's co-founded Voto Latino um, and all sorts of groups like that that have risen in just, I mean, the past five, ten years. Yeah, because politically, you kind of have to fight fire with fire. And by fire, I mean cash monies, lots and lots of cash monies, like a Scrooge McDuck pool of money to buy ads. That's not directly contributing to a politician, but it's uh, oh, for one. politics. I know. I know. I just I hate it. I was thinking today, actually, when we were 
preparing to come into the studio, like, I looked out the window wistfully, and I just thought, God, I would kill for candidates who were just humans. You know what I mean? Like, you can like and respect a candidate all you want all day long and, like, get caught up in the idealism and and believe what he or she says and, and be behind them. But God, I would feel so much better if candidates were just like, yeah, you know, this thing over here sucks. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think some of that is due to the fact that we are a two-party system. Yeah. So you have, you know, like two people who are going for like such a diverse, yeah, exactly. massive group of people. Yeah, I was just so – when Boehner called – Cruz, Lucifer in the flesh. I was just like, that is the. Mo- I'm not even a Republican. Was that the realest moment for you so that, far that in was this like campaign? The, one of the realest moments, and I was like, God, that's refreshing. Well, and one thing we you know haven't even gotten into and and don't have time to is the rise of the kind of superstar political manager yeah. like a Carl Rove. I mean, I think that he's probably the the most intense <laughs> example of that. I mean, that that man has really in a lot of ways um changed American culture. I mean, he's responsible, I think, for a, a vast majority of the conservative political climate right now. Well, yeah, and even with Carl Rove though, you had Karen Hughes. I think only temporarily. I don't think she was with George Bush for the long haul. Uh, she had worked with him back in Texas um, and worked with him on one, if not both, of his election presidential election campaigns. Um, so you did have a woman sort of like in the wings behind Rove. But for all of his puppet mastering, Carl Rove gets both the credit and the blame for all of the stuff that happened in George Bush's uh, presidency. Well, and he's positioned himself in that way, too, because— right. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen Karen Hughes on television before, but no. I mean, you have Carl Rove all the time. Yeah, and that's that's one thing we were reading about too is like how in this modern era, you do have people like Mary Madeline and James Carville, Carl Rove, Donna Brazile, people who are political consultants who even like in the boom times of the 70s and 80s when they first emerged still were behind the scenes. And slowly but surely, or pretty quickly, I guess, they became the talking heads on your cable news networks, you know, your columnists in newspapers, and they have become celebrities and pseudo-politicians in their own right. Well, yeah, speaking of House of Cards, Donna Brazile has made uh, two cameos on the show. I mean, James Carville was in... Old school? I don't know. Like, that is a fact in my brain that um, I wish could be replaced with something more useful. Um, but, I mean, James Carville has made so many cameos and uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, and But that whole thing, too, I would attribute, going back to our old J school days, journalism school where Caroline and I first met, um, it's all about the 24-hour news cycle, too. So, of course, they're pulling from the stable yeah. of people who are really good about talking politics and also spinning and kind of, you know, uh, shooting from the hip with Wolf Blitzer. Yeah. (laughs) Who I once flew in a plane with, um, and he was carrying a a garment bag onto the plane, and it was monogrammed with uh, his wolf initials. And I was hoping it would just be like an airbrushed picture of a wolf. God, I wish. I wish. Um, But I think the most surprising thing was uh, that his— Beard was almost translucent. <laughs> it's 
strange. I thought you were going to say it was like a fake Santa beard that was tied on behind his ears. Oh, also, I wish. Man, I want your <laughs> your wolf blitzer. Um, I was on a plane with Kathleen Sebelius one time, former head of uh, Health and Human Services. We made eye contact when there was a really annoying woman talking on her cell phone. Mm. Mm, Kathleen, I waved to her. Um, anyway. Seebs, if you're listening, <laughs> shout out. <laughs> um, so anyway... It, it It's kind of obvious and goes without saying, and, and Kristen, you already touched on this earlier in the podcast, that if you don't represent the population in your campaign, in your strategy, like, it's obviously going to ding you because you're not going to be able to fully get the picture of your electorate. And uh, Dittmar, yes, can you imagine? Um, Dittmar writing about this says, you have to be able to understand how to speak to all voters, including, hello, over 50 percent of the population, which is women voters. And she points out, as if she needs to, that, listen, you guys, there is value in women's experiences and women's voices. And that value can be applied to shaping policy. Okay. Of course I agree with all of that. Of course. But we have a massive, glaring exception to the idea that you will get dinged at the polls if you don't know how to speak to all voters. And that would be the runaway success of one Donald J. Trump, formerly Trump. But he, yeah, well, yeah, but he's not doing well in the polls with women. Right. But he's still the, as of the time that we are recording this podcast, who knows what will have changed when this uh, episode publishes. He's the presumptive Republican nominee. And it doesn't matter. He doesn't even, he doesn't need women. I mean, granted, in the general election, I would be surprised if it didn't come back to haunt him. Mm. Um, but it, it's, I mean, the the American electorate also is so, um, I don't I don't know how, how, how a good word to describe it. It's so polarized yeah. at this point. It's so extremely polarized that, um, unfortunately, you can make excluding certain people's rights and liberties, including not only um, women, but also uh, Muslims in the case of the Trump campaign. And, and Latinos. And, oh, yeah. And really anyone who's not White. wearing a Make America Great Again hat. <laughs> and not wearing it ironically. Um, but that you can, you can do that and unfortunately succeed. Yeah, but like you said, I mean, he's a runaway success with a very specific demographic. He would not, I don't think, do very well in the general against Hillary or Bernie. Well, we'll see. Fingers heavily we'll see. I mean, at this point, though, um, and I'm really curious to hear from our uh, listeners outside of the U.S. about all of this, too, because I'm sure it just looks like nonsense happening. Um, it is. It is. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't even make any predictions at this point. No. I, I asked my father who he was voting for and uh, he just kind of looks at me because he and I do not talk politics. And he just looked at me and he said, I'll be voting for Kasich after the contested uh, nomination. So, but I mean, that's another interesting example of you can not have women's best interest at heart, but if you keep quiet, 
about how you feel about women as opposed to Donald Trump. Well, maybe Beth Harden, his uh, campaign manager, has had something to do with that. Who knows? Exactly. Um, But, of course, it's not (laughs) – these aren't desirable outcomes. You know, we would like to see – people elected who do um, value women, um, not just as, like, humans, as, like, beautiful objects like uh, Donald Trump has, but as, um, you know, people who uh, should be kept in mind when making and passing policy. And that is one reason why we need to give a massive shout-out to Emily's List, which is a political action committee for pro-choice Democratic female candidates. Um, if you don't know who they are, go look them up. Um, they're terrific. Um, and Jess McIntosh, who works with them, agrees that, I mean, it's simply a practicality to have women working in your campaign. She says, by having women in leadership roles, you're going to have more needed perspectives about messaging reaching voters, all of that when she was speaking to Vocative. Well, what I thought was so interesting and and telling, uh, remember that 2003 consultant study that I mentioned a little while ago? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, rewind, if you don't, <laughs> on your tape deck, your podcast tape deck, rewind. This comes out on cassettes, right? Yeah. Well, how, yeah. People order them on those, um, you remember those like cassette services? like Columbia uh, House. Like uh, Titus Andromeda's exactly. and Kimmy Schmidt subscribed to? Exactly. Um, So, you know, they talked to a bunch of consultants, male and female, and 70% of the women they talked to and just 30% of the men believed that women brought a unique perspective to the campaign and that this perspective could be used strategically to win elections. So interesting. Because then if you don't believe that women have a unique perspective and you are accustomed to hiring and promoting people who are like you— why Why would you make a special effort to bring women in? Yet again, I feel like this is just a microcosm of issues that we see across industries. Right. Well, which is why so many women interviewed in the articles that we read for this episode cited the importance of mentors who can help guide you through those gender expectations, through those minefields, those political minefields, and the importance of women helping and hiring other Women. It's not uncommon, according to a lot of the women we read, uh, for women in campaigns and consulting firms to band together, at least within their own parties, and commit to helping bring up promising young women. That Liz Chatteron Powell, who we cited earlier, encourages female candidates and female-oriented PACs to work only with female consultants. And it's worth noting that women candidates do, in fact, tend to hire more women to work on their campaigns than male candidates do. And she says, if we don't help our own, we will never be successful at tearing down walls. Um, She said that uh, in one campaign that she was working on, a male staff member, a Democratic male staff member, told her that she couldn't run one of his top Senate campaign races because, uh, quote, I was female and none of his candidates would take orders from a woman. Oof. Oof. That's, That's my eloquent response to that. Yeah, and so um, Pal also writes that women can at least be there for each other to help encourage one another to stick it out. She says women are way more likely than men in this field of work to basically, I mean, for lack of a better word, and I'm just going to use the buzzword, but lean out 
when they decide that they want a quote-unquote real job that will afford them some free time to have a family or whatever. Um, And so she envisions, Pal envisions, this landscape where you have training seminars that are exclusively for female operatives given exclusively by female consultants that would then, after the fact, offer a consistent stream of mentoring support to help women stick it out or really just to help women plan their career trajectories in whatever political direction they want to go. Yeah, I mean, it's an exhausting job, I can only imagine, um, getting into this field. So um, I'm curious to hear if there are any listeners who are currently campaigning for um, for candidates right now or who have done so in the past who can give us more feet on the street insights into this. And before we get into listener mail, I want to quickly correct myself. Um, just a minute ago when we were mentioning uh, Kimmy Schmidt, I referred to Titus Andromedus. I, his name is Titus Andromedon. Oh, right. I Titus Andromedus is actually a, a band that I used to listen to all the time. Um, so, <laughs> listeners, don't don't worry, <laughs> don't worry. I know, I know. Um, so, I just wanted to make that a very important point clear. Sorry, I was I was just envisioning. I didn't even hear you finish that because I was just envisioning Titus breaking that tape and having. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I just I just assumed you said it correctly. <laughs> well, listeners, now we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And if um, by chance you know Donna Brazil, please send her our best. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Sarah in response to our episode on the comfort women of World War II. Uh, She says, I was surprised to discover a bit of my own family history. My grandfather is a renowned cardiologist now, but got his start as a brigade surgeon in the Army during World War II in the Pacific Theater. For most of my life, he never, ever talked about the war. However, as I've gotten older, I'm 32 and have since enlisted in the Air Force, he felt comfortable enough telling me bits and pieces about his service. Shortly after the war ended, my grandfather was in Japan trying to prevent epidemics from breaking out among the troops. One of his duties while there was apparently delousing the women high-ranking military officers slept with. I never realized quite what that meant until right now. That's such a terrible position to be in. I guess I now know why he never wanted to talk to me about that job in particular. Thanks for the clarity, and thanks for everything you ladies do. I listen to your podcast all the time. Well, thanks, Sarah. So I've got a letter here from Lena offering some clarifications and corrections about that episode. Um, So so she says, we, referring to uh, Koreans, aren't just upset about the comfort women issue. Japan to date has never actually apologized and they continue to refuse to do so. The last so-called apology was more of a, we're sorry you went through that. In recent years, Japan tried to eliminate a monument to comfort women from various countries, including Korea, the Philippines, China, and other countries. And she goes on to say, I get that things happen and need to be discussed, but depicting Korean culture as one where men would prostitute their own daughters honestly makes it sound like you're trying to reduce the seriousness of what Japan did. In numerous countries, as you mentioned, one of the worst things these women faced post-war was the social shame of their experience and the ways in which they were severely abused. 
being raped wasn't always seen as a sign that you were a victim and we'll take care of you, they were tainted. So everything they went through shouldn't be minimized. China in particular shouldn't be forgotten. Their government and people have been extremely active in pushing for apologies and some sign that they might not repeat the same acts if given the chance. Korea's government has let us down and China's government has continued to pursue numerous issues. I'm not trying to be harsh and I love all of your podcasts. I've found time and again that your research on numerous Asian issues has been extremely well done. This just happens to be a particularly sore spot that isn't just a problem for former quote-unquote comfort women, a term that really needs to die anyway. It was created by Japan specifically to try to tone down the horrific nature of what was done to them. So thank you for writing in, Lena, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your letters and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about women and political campaigns. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 